Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you ever witnessed someone having a seizure? It's a scary event for the person having it and for those around them. Do you know what to do and what not to do? Dr. Eliza Olaru, and neurologist and epileptologist, along with Natalie Morgan-Romain from the Queen's Epilepsy Program, are here to tell us more about what to do if you witness a seizure or if someone you love is diagnosed with epilepsy. We're also going to be hearing from a firsthand report from Maria Reyes about what it's like to live with a family member who's been diagnosed with epilepsy. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First in medical news, can an irregular heart rhythm be a risk for a heart attack? Well, researchers sponsored by the National Institutes of Health reported that this is the case in the latest issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association published today. In a secondary analysis of almost 24,000 individuals enrolled in a study on stroke effects, having an irregular heartbeat caused, called atrial fibrillation was associated with a 96% increase in heart attack risk compared to those without atrial fibrillation. Now, in the past, doctors knew that atrial fib or AFib, the most common heart rhythm irregularity, could result from having a heart attack. A bunch of other things can cause it after surgery, being dehydrated, thyroid problems, hypothermia. But this is the very first time that a corollary has been found to be true, that atrial fibrillation could increase your risk of heart attacks. What should you do? If you have a history of AFib, talk to your doctor about controlling your risks all of your risks for having a heart attack, including the fibrillation, but also cholesterol, sugar, blood pressure, exercise, and more. Now, have you heard of the human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine? It's been offered to young boys and girls to prevent infection with the virus known to be the cause of cervical cancer, HPV. It's a series of several shots, but what happens if you only get one? Well, researchers in the latest issue of the Journal of Cancer Prevention found that even with just one shot, the protection against the dangerous strains of the virus is still present and lasts for up to four years. This is the first time the efficacy of receiving less than the full dose of the vaccine has been studied and provides a basis on which to recommend the shot to be given in fewer doses, particularly in the developing world where 85% of the cases of cervical cancer are diagnosed. However, if you can, it's always recommended to receive the full course of the vaccine in several doses, and it will continue to be studied for its effect at protection in the areas most often affected by cervical cancer. The governor and the mayor proclaimed that November is Epilepsy Awareness Month here in Hawaii, as it is nationwide. And we're talking today about epilepsy. What is it? What should you do if you witness someone having a seizure? And a great conference that's coming up on Saturday for all those who might be interested. It's free for those who want to go at Queens Medical Center from 830 to 130, Living Well with Epilepsy. 
If you have a friend or a loved one or someone you care about or you've ever witnessed a seizure and wondered, what should I do? You can join us today. You can give us a call at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We have a panel of guests today. To my right, we have Natalie Morgan-Romain. She is a nurse practitioner, and she is also program coordinator of the epilepsy program at Queens Medical Center. Straight across, I have Dr. Eliza Olaru, and she is a neurologist and epileptologist who studies and specializes in treating those people who have epilepsy. And I also have to my left, Maria Reyes, and she's a woman I've known for quite quite a few years now who has a family member, a son who has epilepsy, and is going to tell us what it's like to, to be in a situation where someone you love is affected by epilepsy and how that changes the family dynamic and some of the things that you need to do for your loved one and maybe give us some hints on how to help other people who might find themselves in the same circumstances. I want to welcome all of you to The Body Show. Well, let's talk about some of the some of the basics. Now, we hear the word seizure. We hear the word epilepsy. What's the difference? Dr. Olaru, what's the difference? Is epilepsy just seizures or all seizures epilepsy? How do we distinguish those? Uh, not necessarily. So basically, a seizure... Uh, happens when we have an abnormal uh, electrical discharge in the brain. However, not everyone who has seizures has epilepsy. A patient is diagnosed with epilepsy when uh, the patient has two or more unprovoked seizures. Uh, By unprovoked, we mean the seizures are not caused by, uh, let's say, low blood sugar or electrolyte abnormalities. So everything else is checked out first, and you make sure that it's not from some other reason that they've had a seizure. And if you have two of those without any low sugar or or anything like that, then then you're told you have epilepsy. Yes, yes. It's a clinical diagnosis. So how old are most people when they're diagnosed? Um, Epilepsy can happen any time in our lifetime. Uh, It tends to happen more frequently before age of two and after age 65, where we have basically two peaks. So why do you think that is? I mean, we have a peak at really young people, and then we also have a peak when you're over 65. I'm curious, what's what's the reason? Is there is there any idea? Is it people who are over 65, they might have other issues in their brain, like strokes and or other conditions? Yes. So most likely, for example, the first peak that happens in uh uh, patients younger than two are most likely a lot of um, uh, abnormalities uh, around birth time, like lack of oxygen before delivery, during delivery, after delivery, um, uh, chemical abnormalities like inborn uh, errors of metabolism. Um, so something you're born with or happens during birth, that yes. might explain the first two years. And what about that peak after the age of 65? Well, most likely we see related to... Uh, strokes or brain tumors, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So they're more uh, neurodegenerative disease type, and they are associated with seizures as well. Do we treat them the same? We have medications, and we basically use the same range of medications for all seizures. We do not know at this point which medications work better for, let's say, stroke versus brain tumor. Uh, So it's basically a trial and error. Well, and if you try a medicine, you do well, you don't have side effects, you don't have seizures, that's a successful medicine. Yes. For that individual. Yes. So everybody's different. Yes. All right. Now, Maria, you you have a child 
who has epilepsy. When was he first diagnosed? My son was diagnosed when he was 11 months old, and he's 18 now, so... Uh, and you don't look like he. you have an 18-year-old, but okay. <laughs> so tell me, 11 months old, now, how was he diagnosed? Did you witness a seizure? I mean, here you are as a young mom, and you have this, this small child. What exactly happened? Um, he was not feeling well that morning, and he had a fever. I brought him to his pediatrician, and they said he was fine. After that, I drove to the babysitter, and even before I got to the babysitter, I looked behind me in the rearview mirror. He was sort of limp in his car seat, and he was blue in his lips, and he was drooling. And I didn't and know I don't know how you kept driving. I mean, at that <laughs> point, you look in your rearview mirror, you're like, oh, my God, what is going on with my son? Yeah. So, okay, so you notice this, mm-hmm. and then what did you do? Well, I got to the babysitter, which was my aunt, and I said, there's something wrong with my son. And they called 911, and the police came. And eventually, the paramedics came, and then we were brought to the emergency room. So this was the first time he had this episode that you witnessed? Actually, uh, two days at birth, he had a seizure, which I didn't know what a seizure was at that time. Um, That was because we were sent home with a dehydrated child and he had low blood sugar. So they said that's what caused the seizure and other problems. So the first episode was really, he was really young. You were told there's another reason for it. Mm -hmm. And then here you are at 11 months driving down the road and you look in your rearview mirror and that's got to be shocking. It is. (laughs) So how did that affect your your early motherhood. I mean, here you are with this baby. They're diagnosed with epilepsy. Did did the diagnosis come pretty quickly after that and medication occur? Or was there a delay from at the time he was 11 months to when you were able to figure out that's what it was? There was a short delay because um, when the first one happened at 11 months, I mean, the thing that happened at 11 months old, we were just told it's a febrile seizure, something, a seizure that's common in infants that are is triggered by a fever. But for him, um, a week later, uh, he had a seizure without any fever. And so that's when they started to do the workup and all the testing. So if you have a seizure with no fever, you can't really call it febrile or fever seizure anymore. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Olaro, is this common? I mean, is this a story that you hear a lot that young children who have a seizure and maybe they have a fever at the time, parents are told, you know, this this might be okay. And most of the time, is it okay? Yes, most of the time, uh, children will have a seizure with, uh, with fever, and, you know, we don't treat immediately. Uh, and basically only time later, you know, uh, kind of brings a diagnosis when the patient does have a seizure without the fever. Now, with that sort of a delay when they have another seizure, mm-hmm. is there, a, I mean, part of what we do with epilepsy is we treat to prevent seizures. Mm-hmm. Are seizures themselves dangerous on the brain? Yes, some they can be. The more frequent they are, uh, the more severe they are, uh, yes, they can cause damage. So you want to get this identified if you do have epilepsy and have that second seizure identified and start treatment pretty quickly. Yes, it's preferably to do so. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with a panel of guests. I have Dr. Eliza Olaru, and she is a neurologist and epileptologist at Queen's Medical Center. I'm joined by nurse practitioner Natalie Morgan Romain, who helps run the Queen's Epilepsy Program, and Mom Maria Reyes, who's telling us the story of what it's like when your your small infant, your child, is diagnosed with epilepsy, and has a, how does that affect you as time goes on? If you or a loved one have ever experienced epilepsy or you're 
you're concerned about what a seizure means, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Now, Maria, let's fast forward a little bit. So you have a child diagnosed with epilepsy, and you start giving him some type of medication to reduce the number of seizures. Is your son seizure-free? No, he's not. Um, Has he ever been? Uh, not exactly. Um, when he was um, diagnosed with ep- epilepsy, a seizure disorder, he was put on phenobarbital and dilantin. And we were told that if he is seizure-free for two years, then we can consider weaning him off his medications. Um, a few, I think a few weeks shy of two years, he had a seizure. On the medicine? Yes. And so, so you couldn't really wean him off at that point yes. because he had another episode. Yes. And so you kept him on the medication? Yeah, but we had to keep on changing the medication. Like, I think um, phenobarbital and dilantin were not really good for developing brains at that time. So they said it would affect cognitive development. So we just kept on changing medications depending on how much seizure control we got and how much um, side effects we got. Um, and we've been trying all these years. He's never really been seizure-free. And, you know, I'm curious, Natalie, you work as a nurse practitioner with the Queen's Ep- Epilepsy Program. Is that something that we hear a lot? I mean, I hear epilepsy and I think, oh, seizure medications, now they're well-controlled. How often are people well-controlled versus still struggling with intermittent seizures? So roughly 70% of those that are diagnosed with epilepsy have very good control on a medication, maybe two medications. Their seizure frequency is very controlled by the therapy they're given. Um, on the so other about hand, 30% of those about 30%. might still experience the seizures. Exactly. Okay. And there's a broad range of frequency of seizures. Some people have a couple of years, a couple a year. Some people have several in a week. And of those, of that 30%, people may be on one or two medications or upwards of four or five medications. And so really, the number of medicines, the dose of medicine, it's really done to eliminate the seizures. The goal is seizure freedom, but of that 30%, um, you, you don't reach seizure freedom. So then the goal becomes reducing the seizures as much as you can in respect to tolerating the medications that you're on and And the quality of life. Sure, and that magic cocktail of medications, the group that works best for one person, may not be the same ones that work best for somebody else. Can you outgrow your medicine? Can you get to the point where it doesn't work anymore and you've tried X, Y, or Z medication for the last several years, but now you've become, is there, do you get resistant to it? Unfortunately, sometimes you can, if you want to say outgrow your medication, it just stops working. Stops working. And unfortunately, there's for no rhyme or reason, people can have a change in their seizure control, have seizure control for a couple of years or several years, and then lose that control with no change in medications, no change in what you're doing in your daily life. So out of the blue. Out of the blue. It just seems unfair. Yes. All right. Well, Maria, let's get back to you. Speaking of unfair. Okay. (laughs) So here you are, and you're raising this child, and and he's getting older. Did you notice any of the developmental delay that people warned you about with some of the medications or with the condition? Um, We did find, uh, observe some developmental delay, but I couldn't really pinpoint it to the medication. Maybe he was born with the delays, but 
we we don't have any proof. So, so you have um, a wonderful son now. I met him earlier. Yeah. And Kalani seems to be doing fairly well. Yeah. What sort of troubles does he still have to this day? You mentioned he's never had seizure freedom, so he still occasionally has these events. Yeah. You're working on something different now that, that we'll talk about in a few minutes, the mm-hmm. ketogenic diet. But mm-hmm. what sort of challenges does he still have now? Um challenges he has with his epilepsy is his episodes is he cannot tell us anymore that he will have a seizure. Um, When he was younger, a toddler, he would have aura or warning signs that he will be able to tell me, Mom, um, I I see my blinking lights. And that would help us prepare. Like we'll sit in the corner if we're at longs or something and so we're not in the way of other people. Um, but as he grew older, that that disappeared, and his doctors at that time had said that maybe um, the seizures in his brain just spread rapidly, so there's no time for him to tell us that he's seeing something or feeling something. So it's not like he's not telling you. Yes, he he's just not able can't. to. Yes, yes. But when he was younger, he could. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Eliza, does that happen often, that you lose that aura? Yes, it can go actually both ways. There are mm-hmm. patients who... They're, once they're able to tell that the seizure is coming, so they have the aura, or the other way around, you know, if they're poorly controlled uh, and with additional medications, they get an aura, they get the feeling. They ba- they are basically have now the chance to do something before the seizure. If occurs. they're lucky, sure. Yes. So either they have an aura and they lose it, yes. or they don't have an aura mm-hmm. and then they get one. They get one. And they now know, okay, I'm going to have a either seizure. the blinking lights or whatever it might be. What are some of those auras? I mean, I know with migraines, people talk about tunnel vision. They talk about blinking lights. Uh, Natalie, what would be an example of an aura? An aura can really be anything that your brain does. So it might be something as simple as a, a brief period of fright or anxiety um, like a weird smell, would that ever be an aura? Could be a weird smell. Could be blinking lights. Um, it can also be the inability to speech to speak, rather, or the inability to move your right arm. So you might notice this, and then subsequent to that, you might have a seizure. All right, yes. or this might be your seizure type. It might even be the type. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the type, and then I want to talk a little bit about the ketogenic diet, Maria, that you're trying for your son. We'll we'll take a quick break before we do that. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with an expert group of panelists who have experience treating and or living with loved ones who have epilepsy. Maria Reyes is a mom of Kalani who's out front, and she is helping to share her experience firsthand. Natalie Morgan Romaine is a nurse practitioner working at Queens Medical Center in their epilepsy program. And Dr. Eliza Olaru is a neurologist and epileptologist. And if you've got a loved one or a question about what to do about seizures or epilepsy, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. What's it like being a Twitter celebrity? Well, you're not making much money, for starters. I don't think you can do that unless you're already fabulously wealthy, like a Kardashian or something, and then they pay you to tweet. I'm Kai Rizdal. The power of Twitter and the rest of the day's business news next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Hey. 
Have you ever found yourself interested in a local news report and then missed half of it because you got a phone call? Or maybe you had to park the car and turn the radio off. If you want to find out how that report ended, you can go to hawaiipublicradio.org and click on News. There you'll find links to individual reporters' stories, contributors' essays, neighbor island reports, and the talk show audio archives, the HPR website. It's just a click away. Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome back to The Body Show. We're talking about epilepsy. November has been declared Epilepsy Awareness Month here in Hawaii by both the governor and the mayor and, of course, across the mainland as well. And there's a wonderful conference coming up this Saturday, Living Well with Epilepsy. It's happening on November 9th, 8.30 to 1.30. There's breakfast and lunch available at Queens Medical Center. And this is a great time if somebody out there wants to know what is going on with epilepsy, just get more information or have a loved one or someone they care about who's had seizures. What a great free educational opportunity. I'm here in the studio with three guests. I have Maria Reyes, mom of Kalani, who has dealt with epilepsy since her son was diagnosed when he was very young. We have Natalie Morgan Romaine, and she is a nurse practitioner and epilepsy program coordinator at Queens Medical Center, and Dr. Eliza Olaru, who is an epileptologist and neurologist. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about what could be a warning sign of a seizure. And Natalie, you mentioned there's different types of seizures. So sometimes the seizure is just maybe an arm movement or something with speech. It doesn't necessarily have to be what some people may consider a seizure where someone falls to the ground and starts jerking and, and doing various head maneuvers. So there's different types of seizures. What are the most common types? So like you said, the, the most easily recognizable seizure is a convulsion. It's that grand mal seizure that is is difficult to miss and what's commonly portrayed in the media the most frequent type of seizure is something called the complex partial seizure. And this is a seizure, the partial onset seizures start in one spot of the brain. And that's roughly the, the most common across the age span. So what, would, so what would a complex partial seizure look like? A patient basically is confused. The difference between a simple uh, partial seizure and a complex partial seizure is with a complex partial seizure, the patient uh, loses awareness. So they're confused. They don't know actually they have a seizure. Uh, with a simple partial, partial seizure, they're aware. So they can tell, you know, I feel I have numbness in my right hand. That's a simple partial seizure. They can describe the seizure. With a complex partial seizure, they don't feel that. They don't have the awareness. They don't have that the awareness. That's what's going on. Are they conscious? No, they, they can be. They can look. They can uh, look uh, like uh, they uh, are awake, but so, yeah, they're not there. But they don't recognize this is what's going on. Yes, and they can't tell. Oh, I had a seizure, unless maybe you know, something happens. They miss some period of time. But some patients are not aware of their complex partial seizures, or they underestimate the frequency. And so, Maria, when you said. My son could tell me blinking lights. We'd go and sit in the corner in longs. We would try and stay away from other people. If somebody's having a seizure, let's first talk about your grand mal seizure, your tonic-clonic. What should other people in the environment do? Uh, when a patient has a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, the first thing that's really important is to stay calm. Um, Everybody around them should stay calm. calm. Yeah. Stay calm. Uh, try to uh, place the patient the person on the side, um, and try to place something under their head, something that's preferably soft so they don't hit 
their head on the ground. Um, there's no need to stick your fingers into their mouth because although they can bite their tongue, they cannot swallow it. Um, and it's very important to time the seizure because the longer it goes, the seizure, the higher risk are associated with uh, problems pretty much. So you have to time it. And if there are any sharp objects or, you know, corners, furniture, try to clear that and just let the movement, the seizure go because you cannot basically stop the movement. So don't try and stop somebody. Don't restrain them. Yeah. Don't hold their arms. Don't hold their legs. Make the environment as comfortable as possible. Get rid of sharp objects. And don't put your hands in their mouth. Yeah, don't put and just tying in their mouth. Yeah. yeah, because they may bite their tongue better their tongue than your hand, and the tongue will heal. Exactly. Yes, and no one's going to choke on their tongue. And it's very important to keep track of time because so you can't... time it. Everybody's got a phone these days or a watch or something. Take a look, time it. If you don't have any timing element, try and count seconds. Yes, and then presumably, do you call for help? Do you call nine one one? Do you call an ambulance? You don't have to call an ambulance or nine one one after every single seizure. Uh, but of, if there is a prolonged convulsion, generalized tonic-clonic seizure beyond five minutes, that, you know, has significant risks. Uh, and that's why the timing is important. Plus, if you if there is a family member that you are witnessing the seizure, it's, you know, that maybe you really can't be that objective. So that's why looking at the watch, it's always. So really count seconds, make sure you know. Because, you know, this is somebody you love. It may seem like it lasted forever. Exactly. And yet it really was only about 30 or 45 seconds. So having someone time is particularly helpful. Yes. Now, seizures can happen at any time. Mm -hmm. Are there any things that are more likely to bring it on? You know, I wonder if you're not, if you're dehydrated, if you're not sleeping enough, if you're sick, if you do have a fever, but you also have epilepsy. What brings on Kalani seizures, Maria? Um... From an early age, there wasn't anything we can um, pinpoint. But as he grew older, is like lack of sleep, um, playing video games for more than 30 minutes, um, dehydration, overheating, and um, making a bowel movement. So those would be things that would potentially bring on a seizure. Other, other things that would do that, Dr. Oluru? Um, common situations are sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation, so Ex get some rest. Yes, excessive fatigue, skipping doses. Of medicine. Of medicine, mm -hmm. so okay. it's very important to be compliant with your medications. Skipping meals. Skipping meals, again, dehydration, so uh, drink water. Um, some patients have seizures that are triggered by lights. So like the flashing lights mm -hmm. that people mm -hmm. talk about, you know, sometimes they'll they'll flashlights on and off, strobe lights, et cetera. Yes. Bad idea if you're around somebody who has epilepsy or seizures. Could provoke one. Could. Yes. Yeah. yes. Generally, illness is a, yeah. is a very common trigger yes. as well. Yes. Could be anything from the common cold to a bladder infection to pneumonia. Yes. So if you're sick, now, we, we mentioned the over 65 category of folks, and so that's probably concerning to quite a few individuals because mm -hmm. you might have a family member, a loved one, a parent, or, or yourself be over 65 and say, boy, you know, what if I just get pneumonia or get a bladder infection, and then I start having seizures? Now, this has implications for you, particularly for independence and driving and all these other sorts of elements. Yes. So if you yourself think you've had a seizure, but you're not certain that you have, how would an epileptologist know? 
basically we see patients that have spells that are suspicious for seizures and uh, you have to start uh, and work up to see if there are any tendency to have seizures because that maybe could explain what happened and you have to do an appropriate workup. You start with a, a EEG, maybe MRI. You're basically looking to see are there any abnormalities that could tell us that this patient has a risk for having seizures. So an EEG, an electroencephalogram, would be a test where they would hook up some electrodes to your brain, mm-hmm. monitor you, see if there's any evidence of unusual activity in any mm-hmm. particular area. Would they try and provoke a seizure, like we talked about the blinking lights? Would you try and bring one on so you can yes. see exactly where it's happening mm-hmm. in the brain? Yes, the, the most accurate way to diagnose is actually to capture the seizure during the recording. And Wishful there, thinking. I mean, you <laughs> hope you get it. And it can happen sometimes. Um, and we have... Uh, different measures. We make the patient hyperventilate and use the lights. Um, and hopefully, you know, we're going to be able to trigger a seizure. What can we what can we do if we find out, okay, this is the type of seizure they have. We've now seen it on this EEG. How exactly does that help us? It helps you guide treatment. You know, you know the diagnosis of epilepsy depending on the type of of activity that you see on the EEG, you may choose a specific type of medication over another. So certain medications would be better able to handle certain types of abnormalities or causes of seizures in the brain. Like we talked about seizure types, partial onset versus generalized onset, there's different. Some of the anticonvulsants, uh, anticonvulsant medications are aimed at a generalized type of syndrome versus a partial onset type of epilepsy. So really finding out what type is is particularly helpful. Yes. Okay. Yes. Basically, an EEG will help us to identify it's, if it, the seizure is of partial onset or generalized onset as uh, because some of the generalized onset epilepsies can be made worse by using some drugs. So the wrong medication and the other things could can, actually yeah. affect it. Mm-hmm. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with a panel of experts. We're talking about epilepsy and how you can live well with epilepsy, and hopefully lead a long, productive, happy life. You can join our conversation today at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. November is Epilepsy Awareness Month here in Hawaii. Now, there's a conference coming up, and I think for people who have a loved one or somebody who has epilepsy and wants to learn more about it, Natalie, you guys have worked hard to put this conference together just to really give people information, give give folks some knowledge, something that they can learn about so they can help their loved one. Who is this conference for, and when is it going to take place? So this conference is Living Well with Epilepsy. It's going to be this Saturday, November 9th from 8.30 until 1.30. And this conference is really for anybody who lives with epilepsy, is affected by epilepsy, or wants to learn more about it. We're lucky. uh, There's the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii, and we're hosting the conference. The presenters in the early morning will be coming from San Francisco. They're epileptologists and neuropsychologists that will will be giving uh, information about epilepsy. And then we're lucky to have a Hawaii panel with the local specialists. Dr. Eliza Lahr is one of them, um, to end the conference, answer questions, etc. 
So this is really a great public forum where anybody who, Maria, you have a son who has epilepsy, anybody who wants to know more about what epilepsy is, or if they have a loved one, grandparents may have a Mm -hmm. grandchild, or someone who's worried that their loved one may develop this. What a great way to get some free education and hear about it. Absolutely. Now, Maria, your son is doing well right now? Um, He's still having occasional seizures. He still has seizures. And And you're doing something different with something called a ketogenic diet. What's that about? Yeah, a ketogenic diet is a diet that has been tried um, uh, in the past. Uh, Before medicines came on, it was one that the doctors would use to try and stop the seizures. But with the advent of a lot of medications, the doctors just wanted it easier, so they would give the medications. But... um, I think in the past decade or so, it has come to the forefront because it has helped somebody's son um, who is uh, popular in Hollywood. Um, uh, I think it's one of the producers in Hollywood. His son had epilepsy, and the doctors told him there's nothing they can do for him. And they tried to find a doctor who can try the ketogenic diet, and it worked for their son. So ketogenic, if people want to look that up, K-E-T-O-G-E-N-I-C diet. Mm-hmm. And this particular diet was one of those oldie but goodie treatments years ago. Then it kind of fell out of favor. We yes. had a lot of pills. Yes. And then all of a sudden, you know, sometimes we get better awareness about medical conditions and things to do mm-hmm. from popular media, Hollywood, mm-hmm. etc. And so this diet came back into play. And it it sounds like it changes a little bit about what your body uses for energy from traditional glucose, sugar, carbohydrates, things we eat, Mm -hmm. to maybe limiting those things a little bit and trying to change what your body uses for fuel. Yes. So this is something people are doing now. Mm -hmm. Dr. Eliza, doing it a lot. Is it successful? Have you seen this work really well for folks? Or is this kind of if medicine doesn't cure you the 30%, Natalie, you were talking about, let's try something different and see if we can control it in another mechanism as well. How do we use this? Uh, so basically, ketogenic diet, it's a diet, it's very restricted diet. It's high fat and very low carbohydrate and moderate protein. Kind of sounds like an Atkins diet almost. Yes, but a little bit more extreme than that. Um, and um, it has been initially, the first cases showed up in 1920s when basically there was a boy who had very, very severe seizures, very refractory to medications. And uh, there was a osteopathic physician who basically started to starve uh, the patient and the seizures result. So that was the first observation. We starved the patient and the seizure go away. The seizures will go away. And they notice basically when you starve someone, your uh, source of energy is not glucose anymore. Basically, it's fat. And when that fat gets break down, forms ketones body bodies. And when the ketones bodies are high, the uh, happens, what happens is basically that it raises our seizure threshold. So if you have ketone bodies in your in your system, it'll take, you're less likely to have a seizure. Exactly. Um, and ketogenic diet has been used at Hopkins for a long time. And this is what actually it started. Um, and um, kind of it, it fell out of favor because more and more medications came out. However, you know, there is a plateau Patients can take so much medications without having side effects. So lots of uh, families are asking about other measures that could potentially help with seizures without having to deal with side effects that come from the drugs, like feeling very fatigued, drowsy, tired. 
And so the ketogenic diet that was started maybe in the 1920s is something that now might be accessible or something that is super strict, but if it works, yes. it may work really well. Now, Maria, how long has your son been on this? Um, three weeks. Uh, we're, we're in our third week. Uh, we've been, this is our second week out of the hospital because we had to start the diet in the hospital. Um, and uh, we, we haven't seen really a, a significant change, but there are other signs that something's going on, like he's more alert. He engages more in conversation. Um, so what can he not eat? I mean, I wonder, when we talk about a ketogenic diet, what's on the no-no list? So basically how it goes, you have to calculate the number of calories that the patient require per day. And so you get your total number of calories. calories. And after yes. that, you have to make sure there's a percentage. Let's say you're going to have 70% fat, 20% protein, and 10% carbs. So the normal diet wouldn't necessarily be 70% fat. Mm -hmm. It would be a little bit different. So this is you calculate out your total number of calories. You figure out how much from fat and mm -hmm. protein and carbs. And then what foods do you focus on? Uh to be able to reach those numbers, so let's say at that 1,600 calories per day, you have to eat per each meal, let's say, 48 grams of fat, 8 grams of protein, and 2.8 grams of carbs. Two I mean, point, very little carbs. So Yeah, it sounds almost easy when you say, eat all this fat, and I go, hmm, that would probably <laughs> taste good, but then not so much because... You eat a lot of fat. And then, and then you have so little carbohydrates, so the fats, we're not getting pancakes for breakfast. No. No. No, this no is, pancakes, no bread, no rice is made. It's, so those are on the no-no list. They're no-no list, yes. If it's a carbohydrate, have, it's probably on a very restricted list. Yeah. yeah. So you can have pancakes, but not with uh, ingredients that we normally use for pancakes. Not the regular pancakes. Yeah. yeah. They'd be funny kind of pancakes. Uh, macadamia nut pancakes, yes. So, okay. So yes. you make a flour out of them pretty much. Okay. So there are certain different types of... So mm -hmm. there's ways to take foods that you mm -hmm. love, modify them so they fit into this diet, mm -hmm. yes. with the intention being that if you get to the point where your body has all of these ketone bodies, that's the source of energy, mm -hmm. then you won't have seizures So dis or hopefully reduce the number. Exactly. So as hard as this is, Maria, I mean, are you are you like... Sneaking your carbohydrates in your bedroom or something? I mean, how no. do you do this in a family? No, it's... it's um, well, or do it's you all challenge. do it now? So uh, No, no. Okay. It's a challenge. Um, before going into the hospital to start it, we, we were on a one-month pre-ketogenic diet mode. Ease yourself into it. Yeah, mm -hmm. so um, we just had to reduce my son's rice, pasta, and bread. And sort of sympathizing with him, I would also eat less of those in front of him. Um, That's once, the key. Yes. In front of him. Yeah. And uh, once we were on the ketogenic diet, um, we just noticed that we don't eat together as a family at dinner because his meal has to be spaced out evenly. So his dinner would end up at 8. We normally ate at 6 o'clock before. So my husband and I would be hungry. <laughs> but we just try to snack and then eat with him too at his meal. But um Everything has to be weighed. We have a weighing scale to weigh everything. And it's really complicated. I mean, it sounds like this is a huge task. It's a huge task, but um, for me, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with weighing stuff and creating meals. I'm, um, I, I'm not stressed out with that. I'm more stressed out with complying. 
complying with the diet. My son is okay, but um, we ha- we just have to help as a family to be on the same page as to <laughs> when we do all these um, meals together. I can't even imagine. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with the panel of experts. We have Maria Reyes, who's doing her best to do the ketogenic diet to reduce her son's seizures. We have Natalie Morgan Romaine. She is a nurse practitioner and the epilepsy coordinator at Queens Medical Center. And we have Dr. Eliza Olaro, and she is an epileptologist and neurologist. And when we come back, we are going to talk some more about what are some of the ways to help prevent seizures and what should you do and what are the restrictions if you have seizures with driving and everyday lifestyle and other things that some of us may not think are as big of a challenge, but probably are more than we would expect. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. In the morning, I have my juice, my toast, and the BBC in the evenings, especially Saturdays and Sundays, I, I like Seth Marcos' show. Um, I love American Roots. If I'm in the mood for classical music, again, I can just push the other button and listen to it. If I'm driving, it seems like whatever's on is good. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. On the next Humankind. While Helen Keller certainly deserves her credit, There are too many people that don't think there's anybody else in the world that's deafblind except her. A remarkable conversation with Mary Gillespie, who can neither see nor hear. Next time on Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with the panel of experts, Natalie Morgan Romaine, nurse practitioner and coordinator of the Epilepsy Program, helping out with the conference coming up Saturday, Living Well with Epilepsy, a free event at Queens Medical Center to help educate those in the public about what is epilepsy and what can you do for it. We also have Dr. Eliza Olaro, neurologist and epileptologist, who is here sharing her expertise as to what to do when somebody has epilepsy and how can we treat them and figure out the best way to make them hopefully seizure-free. And we also have Maria Reyes. She is a mom, firsthand experience, trying to deal with someone's child who has epilepsy and how does changes in diet and social structure and even family meals get affected by this in the best way to try and avoid having seizures for her son. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, we've talked a lot about having seizures. Uh, Dr. Olaru, tell me, if you have seizures, you can't drive or you have restrictions on your driving based on how long you're seizure-free. That has a lot of implications for how you get around, transportation, etc. But what are those rules? In state of Hawaii, um, if someone has a seizure with impairment of awareness, that person cannot drive for at least six months after their seizure. Uh, however, different states have different rules. So some states have one-year rule or maybe longer. So here in the islands, six months. Six months. Yes. And it has to be the type where you have a loss of awareness. Yes, if you or, or if you're having a generalized tonic clonic seizure. Sure, that's loss of awareness and yes. 
Okay. So that includes the complex partial that we talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, we know if you have a grand mal seizure, make the environment comfortable, get rid of sharp objects, put something under the head, um, don't necessarily put your hands in anybody's mouth. Mm -hmm. The most common type, the complex partial. What do we do if that happens? So this one can sometimes be a little bit more tricky because somebody with a complex partial seizure, they're not awake and aware. They, their eyes are open. They may be moving around in their environment, but they don't know what they're doing during that brief period of seizure activity. So some people might wander. Some people might run. And there's obviously risks when you're when you're thinking of this. So they can walk into traffic. They can fall down a flight of stairs. So the 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 biggest thing to do is to remain calm, just like you would during a convulsion, witnessing a convulsive seizure. Remain calm, but also protect the environment. So secure the environment and remove danger as much as possible. If somebody's in a room, close the door so they don't walk out of that room. Move chairs or tables to the side. Uh, if they happen to be in a kitchen cooking, move them out of that. Um, certainly if they're in a body of water or in a place where they're going to suffer a burn or a fall, limit that risk. Sure. Mm-hmm. So so almost the same as a grand mal seizure, mm-hmm. but more difficult because I may think the person having the seizure is aware, but they're mm-hmm. really not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now protect s- them in that environment. Protect them, that, them in that environment. Also try and refrain from grabbing the person or restraining the person because it's just reflex to fight back if somebody is holding you. So during this seizure, people are confused, not aware of their surroundings. So if you try and hold them frequently, will cause them to become anxious or aggressive. And then you have a whole other host of troubles. Okay. We've got a caller on the line. We have Catherine from the Big Island. Catherine, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, This call is a little bit out in left field, but I've been thinking a lot about your thoughtful conversation. And I just wanted to share uh, with your panel... Uh, my experience, I'm a mother of three children. They're 12 years apart and grew up at very different times, but all three of my children have had seizures, and thank God none of them have uh, have gotten the diagnosis of epilepsy, but with each one of them, we had to go through a tremendous amount of, you know, testing and stuff to prove epilepsy out, and one child, it was uh, febrile seizures as an infant, which he grew out of. Uh, the other child had a seizure caused by complications of a wit- of wisdom teeth being taken out and go- undergoing tremendous pain. And uh, she had a seizure in front of a computer when she went back to school. She had a ground mal seizure. Uh, my third child, uh, as an adult, probably was experiencing uh, the kind of dehydration where you actually drink so much water that you flush the minerals out of your body. She was a runner and very thin. And my uh, brother-in-law is a neurosurgeon with the New York Center for Epilepsy at NYU. And so obviously I referred to him about these situations. And something he taught me is that it is not unusual to have a seizure, that many people do have seizures in their life caused by all these traumatic experiences to the body, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have epilepsy. So um, when I say to people, oh, all three of my kids have had seizures, you know, they kind of look at me like, really? And I said, yes, and we don't have a history of epilepsy, but maybe my kids just run particularly high energy nervous system. I don't know. Have any other 
uh, uh, people experience something like this? That's a great question, Catherine, because you mentioned a couple of the the risks for seizures that we talked about earlier, one being febrile, the other one being dehydration. And it might have been just an electrolyte disturbance. You know, when you drink so much water, your sodium goes really low. And if your salt level's low, you can have seizures with that. Then you mentioned right. also extreme pain with the wisdom teeth removal. So, you know, there's certainly, you're right, seizures actually are more common than people might think. Epilepsy is what's not as common. So luckily, as you mentioned, not every seizure equals epilepsy. Um, But you brought up three really important uh, documented evidence uh, episodes where someone you love, your children, have had these episodes. And so, you know, with your brother-in-law's help, hopefully you've learned not to be as scared and afraid of it. And your children, they've all been okay. They turned out well. Everybody's everybody's happy and healthy. The other thing that I want to mention, I do come from uh, New England, and the episode of Lyme tick disease has just skyrocketed there over the last 20 years. And I've had family members who have gone through years of suffering, including seizures uh, caused by Lyme tick that went undiagnosed for years. And uh, oftentimes even people here in the islands or the West Coast or in the, e- or in the West they may have traveled in places where there is Lyme tick, or Lyme tick is moving across the country, and it has very serious neurological uh, consequences. And I'm not sure the testing here for Lyme tick is as immediate as it is back east, where they basically you get tested for that when you start to experience any, as they say, um, wandering symptoms. So well, I don't know how you all feel about the Lyme tick thing, but I just didn't want to mention that. Good point. You know, I actually come from the East Coast, from the Philadelphia area. So pretty familiar with Lyme disease and what can happen when you're exposed to different types of infections. You bring up another point, which is, could certain infections cause people to have seizures? And although Lyme is one of them, there are other infections we mentioned earlier. People over 65 who get bladder infections or pneumonia or something else could be at risk for having seizures. There's other infections that occur directly in your brain, meningitis, encephalitis, etc. And those can also cause you to have seizures. So some great points, Catherine, from the Big Island. I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your experience. Now, you know, Dr. Olaru, other infections, is there anything unique to the islands, to Hawaii, that is associated with seizures or epilepsy that we might not otherwise think of? I know we talk Connecticut, New England states, East Coast, we're talking potentially Lyme disease, but anything local to the islands that is unique to us? Nothing nothing to worry about? I think basically you have seizures when the patient has encephalitis or meningitis. It happens most uh, often with encephalitis. There have been some uh, here, uh, we had some very refractory encephalitis cases. And in most of the cases, you're not able to identify the virus. Because uh, is it gone by the time you start looking? Or we just don't. We just don't have the testing exactly. to find it. So whatever it's specific to the islands or we just don't. We don't know. Or we don't know. But yes, we have had a few cases very, very refractory. Um, very refractory seizures after encephalitis. And hopefully you won't get encephalitis and then you won't have to worry. But it's another potential cause of seizures would yes. be having an infection that affects that area of your brain. Mm-hmm. And therefore you have this trouble. Okay. Well, now we've talked a little bit about the ketogenic diet that Maria's working on with her son, and we've talked a little bit about different types of seizures. Most commonly used medications, they do potentially have side effects. Mm -hmm. How do you find the best one 
for the particular individual? Is there a, a way that you can, you mentioned earlier, EEGs, Natalie, sometimes direct you in one direction or another, or another as far as the right medications? Is it common for the 70% of seizure-free people to be on one medicine, or are most of those on more than one? You know, in choice of medications, you look at the patient in general, so gender, age, etc. If if you have a female patient of childbearing years, you're going to avoid specific medications if possible. If you have a young school age child or college age young adult, you may avoid one of the medications because it can tend to make people foggy or make their thought process a little less clear. Um, do we have a lot of medicines out there? I mean, I know that for blood pressure, we have hundreds of different medications. Yeah. Are there that many for for epilepsy, or are we still using ones that we've used 40 and 50 years ago? No, there are many uh, newer medications, so we have at least 20. Uh, so we have to look at the anti-epileptic drugs as, you know, the lower generation, uh, the older generation like phenobarbital and dilantin. They're very effective drugs uh, by no means. However, they do have uh, lots of side effects. So the newer medications, they don't have a higher efficacy, but they tend to have a, tend to be better tolerated. So that will be the advantage uh, of the newer medications um, that we use. And in each patient, as uh, Natalie said, we have to look at the whole picture. We have to look at the, what are the common side effects of this particular drug, what are the other health problems that this patient has, and um, and this is how we choose. Uh, we're trying to, let's say, if it's an overweight patient, we prefer to choose a drug that, you know, doesn't, doesn't make you hungry, make yes. you gain more weight because exactly. you already have that issue. Okay, so there are some different side effect profiles mm-hmm. or individual uh, body types and or gender and whole different host and of things. And age-related issues. That and go this is into how, this medication. And this is okay. how we try to choose. And if you get on a source of medication that you start having seizures after you're on that, you have some other options. You switch to something else. Yes, yes. Keep it, trying until you find something that's effective. Exactly. And if it's not effective, look at some other alternatives. Yes. Yeah, so, again, the 60 to 70% they uh, respond to medication. So, the 30% are part of medically refractory epilepsy. So, in this case, you have to look at other things like uh, are there uh, candidates for epilepsy surgery? So, they have to undergo uh, an extensive workup. Um, the other option is VNS, vagus nerve stimulator, or the ketogenic diet. And there are other things that possibly could be approved in the future. Um, however, basically, you have to look into those three options. So you try the diet, maybe the stimulator, maybe even surgery, and then there might be some things coming down the pike, hopefully soon, that would be able to help those who are the refractory, the 30% who are not seizure-free. Exactly. And if, if somebody you love has seizures, or if they develop seizures and you're not quite sure why, they get told they have epilepsy, what can you as an individual do to help support them? I think the most important thing to do is to learn about epilepsy. And for the patients or the family members that live with epilepsy, know know your epilepsy. Know what type of seizures you have. Know how to have as normal a life as possible with some some safety measures in place to reduce the risks of injury. And if somebody wants to know more about epilepsy, we've got a chance for them to do it. 
Tell me a little bit about what people might learn at the conference on Saturday. So things that are going to be reviewed um, and discussed are an epilepsy 101. So what is epilepsy um, and the generals of that? Medications, different treatment options such as surgery. And we also have a neuropsychologist coming to talk about how mood and behavior is impacted by epilepsy and from living with epilepsy. There's also the consequences of uncontrolled epilepsy. So what happens when you don't gain good seizure control? So now all of these things are topics people could learn about. And the conference is, let's just briefly review when and where and how can people get more information? It's at the Queens Medical Center this Saturday, November 9th. And it's from 830 in the morning to 130 in the afternoon. And lunch is included for those that come. And if somebody wanted to get more information, do they need to register? Can they just show up that day? Absolutely. We would prefer to have everybody register, and you can do that by going to www.hawaiiepilepsy.com slash L-W-W-E. You can also contact the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii. And the number that we can give them a holler, do they have a phone number? We do, and that number is 808 528 3058. So lots of information available for folks if they want to learn more about how to support their loved one. Uh, Maria, you're trying ketogenic diet. I mean, talk about really supporting your son. You're even doing some of this yourself to try and make sure that your family unit works together to avoid having your son have more seizures. Dr. Olaru, people hopefully, if they have seizures, will go see a neurologist, someone who specializes in epilepsy. Is that another important thing to do? Yes, it's important to, you know, to go and see your physician, your neurologist or epileptologist. Uh, you want to make sure you take your medications and you're monitored. Um, the fact that you're taking medications doesn't mean you're not going to have a seizure. However, with medications, we're trying to reduce the frequency or the severity of, of the seizure. So you can have as normal as you can life. Mm-hmm. Um Again, it's very important to have uh, to be able to drive, and um, otherwise there will be restrictions. And you want to be able to get around and live your life. Mm-hmm. Yes, Natalie, you had a last word. I had the last word is that while many of us can't prevent having epilepsy, many of us can. So by reducing any risk, any injury to your brain, skateboarding injuries, head traumas, controlling your diabetes and your hypertension to avoid stroke risk, those are all measures that we can do to prevent having seizures. All right, everybody has a role to play here. Well, I want to thank all of you for being on the show today, Maria. Good luck with Kalani. Thanks for sharing your firsthand experience. And I do hope that the changes you're making keep him seizure-free. Natalie, Excellent job. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. Natalie Morgan Romain is a nurse practitioner and program coordinator at Queens Medical Center for their epilepsy program. Dr. Eliza Olaru, thank you again for sharing your expertise with us. All right. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week, Monday at 5, right here on The Body Show. Thanks for joining us.